This week on WealthTrack, financial thought leader, top-rated economist, and strategist Jason Trennert on why chances of recession look low and continuation of the bull market looks good. Next on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. As 2019 enters its final weeks, there is much to contemplate and for the markets to digest. A U.S. economy that keeps on muddling through, setting new records for longevity as it goes, powered by low unemployment and consumer spending. A record-breaking bull market, 10-plus years and counting, that keeps advancing despite some serious reversals an accommodative Federal Reserve that has cut interest rates three times in the last year, but appears to be on hold for now. On again, off again, trade talks between the U.S. and China, which affect businesses and investors. A daily drumbeat of impeachment reports keeping news junkies in the Washington press corps in overdrive. A near trillion dollar federal budget deficit, the highest in seven years with no signs of shrinking. On again, off again, Brexit developments increasingly violent Hong Kong protests, a slowdown in China's economic growth, yet the biggest Singles Day festival sale by Alibaba on November 11th, showing the spending power of the Chinese consumer, $38.3 billion worth. Political upheavals around the globe, in Bolivia and Chile to name just a few, and spreading violence in Mexico. Time to consult a financial thought leader who has the scope to put it all together and tell us what it means. I asked Jason Trennert, co-founder, managing partner, and chief investment strategist of Strategus Research Partners to join us. For the third year in a row, Strategus has been voted a top macro research provider by institutional investors. It also provides asset management in separate accounts for institutions and high net worth individuals. Strategus is one of our recent sponsors, but Trennert, a regular WealthTrack guest since our launch in 2005, appears because of his considerable professional skills and standing. My first question to him, what was his assessment of the risks of a U.S. recession? I think the, the chances of recession are pretty low, largely because uh, the consumer is in such good shape and monetary policy is so accommodative. Um, ben Bernanke was very, um, uh, very wry in saying that usually expansions don't die of old age; they get murdered. And, <laughs> murdered uh, by the it, Fed, it, a lot, right? Right. For, right. Usually, what ends right. a, what ends a recovery is that uh, inflation rises to the point where the Fed feels like it has to stop it. And this time around, even though you're 10 years into an expansion, it's been a very shallow expansion, and the Fed is very accommodative. And so, the chances of getting a recession somewhere in the next 12 to 18 months, in my opinion, is quite low. So it rides on the back of the consumer, which is what 70% of the of GDP in it's, the U.S. It's just shy of 70% right. uh, of GDP in the U.S. And then, if you look at the unemployment rate, which, yes. which is roughly 3.6%, you look at wages, which are growing at about 3%, and and, and inflation is low, so the real wages are higher. Uh, and then you look at the savings rate, uh, which is Americans are doing something they haven't done a lot in the past 50 years. They're actually saving while they still have jobs. Uh, mm-hmm. Americans, uh, you know, sadly, over the past 50 years, largely would only start saving after they lost their jobs. So savings rate is high. 
and net worth is at an all-time high. So if you include uh, so financial, financial assets in your in home, your home. Right. consumer net worth is at an all-time high. So th there are shock, the unemployment rate is very low and there are significant shock absorbers if there were a shock from let's say oil prices or something else that were to happen, the consumers are, are very well prepared for any sort of downturn. What's the situation with, with business earnings and with business confidence? So earnings grew a lot in 2018. They've slowed meaningfully uh, in 2019. We think they're poised to grow modestly next mm -hmm. year. The biggest problem with business spending, in my opinion, was uh, the trade war that happened in 2019. Right. Uh, and 2018. Right? And I mean, 2018. Right. right. 2018, you had that the, there was a tax cut that was very much designed to increase capital spending, mm -hmm. to increase business spending, and it worked last year. The problem is this year, the trade war really introduced a lot of risk for businesses that they weren't expecting. And right. so they um, really went back to what they traditionally have done in the past 10 years, which is buy back stock as opposed to invest in their businesses for the long term. So something that's good for shareholders, good for the stock market, but it's not particularly good for economic growth. Right. And in my opinion, some detente between U.S. and China, which seems likely, um, on trade would boost business confidence and boost business uh, business spending. Where is your sense of optimism that there's going to be a, a trade deal uh, a, between China and the U.S.? It's largely, I would say, it's largely coming from um, public statements by the administration, uh -huh. our our own our own contacts within the administration. Uh -huh. And I think it's a general sense, really almost kind of a common sense approach. We'll see whether that works. That that both the U.S. and China. Uh, are at a point where they both want a deal uh, because they both suffered in okay. some ways, both politically and economically. And it, it seems to us it would, as if it would be uh, almost nihilistic not, not to come to some sort of at least intermediate agreement right. uh, to move economic growth forward in both countries. Fed policy, you, you mentioned that the monetary policy is one of ease. Yes. And we've had, I guess, three rate cuts in the Fed funds rate this, this year, year so far. So um, what's the outlook? I think the Fed is done for now. Let's mm -hmm. say for 2019, it's, it's unlikely they're going to ease again, especially the employment numbers are, are good. And, and they're right. probably going to want to see how, if there is a trade deal, how that affects economic growth. There may be another easing in, in 2020. But I would say as an equity investor or someone who focuses mm -hmm. on the stock market, I would hope candidly that there there is no need for further easing because right. that would mean that the economy was actually in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, in the past when we've seen three or four easings the stock market actually and the Fed stops the, the stock market actually does very well. Mm -hmm. It's almost kind of the pause that refreshes and the economy and the market take off once again. So, so that's where we are now. That's where we, right. we hope we, we are hope now. We are. Global rates, unprecedented interest rate environment. How, how does that affect your read of what's going on in the you know global economy and also in the the markets how that's yeah. going to impact well, the markets well to me it's all. a very the, the amount of negative yielding debt which right. i believe is somewhere around 15 trillion i think it got as high as 17 trillion it's more right. than doubled in the past year right. um, is a very strong indication to me that um, foreign economies are relying too much on monetary policy mm -hmm. and that it's not working mm -hmm. uh, so the ECB and the Bank of Japan, their, their primary focus is on lowering rates every time the economy is... It shows any sign of weakness. Any sir, sign right. of weakness. They really need to use other tools. They need to right. focus on, in my opinion, fiscal, fiscal policy. Policies, fiscal uh, stimulus from the or, government or, spending. Or, or regulatory policy. Right. And frankly, I would think that they would 
like to, they should do something that's closer to what the U.S. did, which is actually cut spending on businesses mm -hmm. and do things that would be beneficial for, for capital formation. Right. But you mean cut taxes on Cut taxes on businesses so right. that they actually build more plant and equipment and they do more things to, to, right. for long-term productivity. But uh, whether that's a cultural problem or whether mm -hmm. um, they're just unwilling to do it, uh, it, it seems pretty clear now, given the amount of negative yielding debt, that just focusing on monetary policy is not working. Uh, and right. in some ways, it may be reinforcing the very things that they're trying to fight, which is to say, I think, personally, I believe that focusing just on monetary policy, which is, is used to increase inflation, mm -hmm. is actually reinforcing lower inflation. Mm -hmm. Because you keep too many companies in business, you have too many zombie companies that are all competing, no one has pricing power. Right, and it so has, they're all getting financing because the interest rates are so low. And, so a lot of weak right. companies stay in I business, see. And, I which see. is... Um, you can, on the one hand, you can say that's good because people keep their jobs and they stay in business, but it, it's not a good way to allocate capital. Mm -hmm. It's very inefficient and mm -hmm. hurts productivity. Mm -hmm. Bull market resilience. So we're in a record longevity as far as the bull market is concerned. Um, it's been very sensitive about the trade talks. What, what's going to determine the, the bull market's continuity? You know, usually, I mean, it's the old, uh, Sir John Templeton said that to paraphrase him, said bull markets start in pessimism, they grow in skepticism, and they die in euphoria. Mm -hmm. And I feel pretty strongly that the public markets, the, the stock markets right. that people can invest in easily, are not showing the, the signs of euphoria that typically presage a, uh, a bull market top. Uh, the private markets, private equity, mm -hmm. uh, which we talked about, in my opinion, is a different story. And, and I think that's part of the reason why the IPO market has been so disappointing. Mm -hmm. initial this, public, you know, the uh, initial offering. public offerings. And, and, and why has it been so disappointing? Right. So in the, in the old days, uh, let's say before private equity was a, a very large asset class, companies would need to go public earlier in their life cycle. Uh, right, and to, to raise to capital. To raise capital right. to grow. Yes. And so um, they... Actually, for the very good companies, they, they left a lot of growth on the table for the individual investor mm -hmm. uh, to so get rich. So they come public and, right, come and public their stocks would go and up. Stocks as would go flourish. up, and, and, and of course, right. some of them go down. But but right. there was there were plenty of examples where uh, people could get wealthy. Mm -hmm. This time around, because there's a, a, this enormous new asset class, which is private equity, the companies are staying private a lot longer, and they're going public. Uh, at very, very high valuations. WeWork was going to go public with a valuation of $47 billion. billion. Amazon went public, uh, as an aside, at $400 million. Wow. So, oh. um, again, I think that's part of the reason why they're not doing particularly well when they become public is that there's not, people are sensing correctly that there's not right. a lot of performance or not a lot of um, uh, gains to be had for the average person. So the private equity firms who are investing in these, in these private companies and they're taking them public, they're making a lot of money on the initial public offerings if they're being sold to the public at lofty prices, right? That's right. But most, uh, it's true, but a lot of, uh, a good portion of private equity exits are to other private equity firms. So that, that so the, the ones that actually are, do get to the final stage yeah. where they go public, the private equity firms do make a lot of money. Uh, there are a lot of other investments that they have where, frankly, it's somewhat ambiguous how, mm -hmm. how much money uh, they're making. Um, so that's another, uh, we could do a whole show uh, on, on that and, mm -hmm. and, and the potential problems for that for pension funds and endowments and foundations. But I, I would say the, 
the average person doesn't have to worry too much about right. that. Right, unless their pension funds uh, are, unless their pension funds are, are loaded with private loaded equity. With private right. equity, yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. So this mix, which uh, has you know concerned me just a, a, as far as the public's ability to participate in capital formation in this country, because you always could do it through the public markets, and now a lot of that is closed off to us, to the you know average person. Um, because of this other asset class. So why has that asset class uh, grown so much? I mean, why has that become? The, the irony is that the asset class grew after the, the most after the, the global financial crisis. Oh, okay. Which is ironic because uh, it's illiquid. Right. Um, and but it's I, supposed to be illiquid, it, so it It's supposed matter, to be illiquid. That right? gives you the, the performance. But one would think after the experience during the global financial crisis, where people at, at certain points, I know I was, you worried about your money market funds. Right, right? sure. You, you worried about cash. Uh, it seems rather odd that large public pension plans and foundations would actually seek out illiquid assets. Right. But um, in an odd way, the opacity of the product is the appeal. Yeah. Um, and so it allows you in some ways to live a lie mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or at least it allows you to take a long time to figure out whether it works. Right. But I, I am extremely skeptical from here on in that the returns from private equity will be anything like they've been in the past mm-hmm. 10 years. For, right. at, th- at, at this size, it's almost impossible, in my opinion, for that asset class to return what it's returned in the past. Right. The political backdrop is, uh, let me say that it's dynamic. Yeah, that's one way of putting <laughs> one it. One way of putting yeah. it. Um, so your Washington team, led by Dan Clifton, right. um, is monitoring it daily. If you step back from the daily political drama, what in Washington really matters to you and to the markets and to us as investors? I think it's really policy as opposed mm-hmm. to the politics. And it's, it's uh, I don't <laughs> want to get myself in trouble. I don't want to get hate mail. I don't want you to get hate mail. Uh, but I do think, so I would watch, uh, of course, the central bank takes care of monetary policy. Right. And then the administration largely takes care of fiscal, regulatory, and trade policy. Right. Uh, and in my opinion, this administration uh, is quite good on fiscal and regulatory policy. Mm-hmm. Trade has been a drag. Mm-hmm. If trade gets better, frankly, you have all four policies working for you. Mm-hmm. The next president, if there is a new president, right. I would watch very carefully what their plans are as far as fiscal, regulatory, and, mm-hmm. and trade. And I think there, candidly, it seems like the fiscal policy would become tighter, which is to say you'd raise taxes, you'd uh-huh. probably have more regulations. And I'm not sure trade policy would be any easier. Now we're going to get just to investing. Right. You coined the acronym TINA. There is no alternative. And, um, and that meant that there was no alternative to stocks because returns on other assets were very low. Right? Exactly. All right. So is TINA still in operation? It's still uh, quite very much in play. Yeah. Uh, certainly, as we talked about, in Europe and Japan, where you have so much negative yielding debt, there really is no alternative for investors that need a certain return. They right. have to go to riskier assets, and mm-hmm. they have to go to equities. And so, so that's in Europe and Japan. I, I would say it, TINA is a global Stocks. phenomenon okay. because okay. central banks have largely done the same thing, which has right. cut rates and increased the size of their balance sheets. Mm-hmm. There is a chance the U.S. It becomes a trap, though, mm-hmm. when you rely on ever lower interest rates. It's very hard to pull yourself out of it. 
The U.S. has the best chance, though, where we're hoping as, as active money managers, as strategists, as economists, you don't want to see an artificial economy. You want no. to see capital uh, allocated appropriately. And I do think some thawing of the trade tensions in the U.S. would give the U.S. an ability to grow and TINA not to be as operative, which okay. is to say you'll have higher interest rates. There'll be other options aside from just stocks. Right, stocks. Right. There, you, there might be other um, bonds or, or corporate bonds or other things that might actually compete with stocks mm-hmm. in terms of performance. But that hasn't been true really for largely the last 10 years. Right. So um, how do we invest? If you're correct about the economy and the market's continuing uh, to, you know, the economy continuing to grow and the market's continuing to advance at any rate, um, what sectors can perform well in, yeah, in the most mature stage of a cycle? I see, I actually think if there is some sort of detente with, uh, in terms of trade with U.S. and China, that actually the economy will get, ref- a- a- along with Fed easing, will actually be refreshed okay. and, and the cycle could last a bit longer. The one sector that has not really participated because of interest rates have been so mm-hmm. low that couldn't benefit by higher interest rates is financials. Mm-hmm. Financials are very, uh, very attractively priced. Um, yeah, that means that they're lower. They're, they're right. <laughs> that's, right. <laughs> that's one way of putting it, yes. right? Uh, that's a pr- they're right. They're, they right. went down. They went down. Right. Uh, they haven't. They haven't. They haven't done very well. Right. Um, but they're quite cheap. Yeah. And they're much more secure than they were ten years ago. Uh, they're they're operating at leverage ratios that are a third of what they were ten years ago. So. The good news is the regulation has uh, perhaps saved them from themselves. Mm-hmm. They're very strong companies. They're trading at very attractive valuations. And if interest rates rise, they should benefit because right. they, they make money from the spread between long-term interest rates and short-term interest rates. So in my opinion, um, financials, the financial sector is a very good place to be. That's the only thing you've got, Jason? I'm saying, no, no, no. And, and I say that because... Interest rates have have continued to decline. I mean, they've gone up yeah. a little bit recently. Yeah. But that's been like the wrong bet now for like, you know, 10 years mm-hmm. that interest rates were going to come well, back that's true. up, even with the economy being stronger. Right. Well, that's, they've, so, they've actually, they've created, I mean, the, the, the returns haven't been, uh, they've underperformed the market, but the returns haven't been that bad. But yeah. they, they can do a lot of catch up in a lot of ways. Actually, okay. the financials did very well. After uh, it, President Trump was elected, did very yes. well for a, about two and a half years. Right. Um, it was when you got into this year and the trade war, which brought the global economy down, that they really started to suffer. Right. Okay. Um, so I, I have a feeling if you, again, maybe on the opposite side, if things get better in terms of trade, financials should start to, to work again. Okay. And it, it's not an insignificant part of the market. It's probably about 17 or 18 oh, percent is it of, the S&P, of the S&P 500. So right. it's getting financials to work it allows a lot of other things to work as well, because in some ways, the, obviously, banks are the, finan- are, are the mechanisms through yes. which monetary policy gets into the rest of the economy. Right. right. So um, when you were on last in May of 2018, you did recommend a, an ETF, KRE, um, which was a an ETF of regional banks, which did well for a while, and then it didn't right, do well. Right. It did well for the rest it, of 18. It didn't yeah, do well. It hasn't, well, done, done, right. hasn't done well this year until yes. very recently. Right. So what would you recommend? I like, I like KRE. You do. Regional I, now, banks? Regional banks, in my opinion, again, they, they will benefit from really two things. Uh, one is what I believe will be a, a greater spread between long-term and, and short-term interest rates. Also, the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve, a fellow by the name of Randy Quarles, is working hard to make sure that regional banks are not, don't have the same regulatory 
the highest regulatory standards that the very largest banks have. Mm -hmm. The reason why that might sound bad, but it's good because right. the, the very largest banks can really afford it. Yes. And the smaller banks are closer to average everyday people, and they've had to spend a lot of money on some of these regulations, which have probably prevented them from extending credit mm -hmm. to smaller businesses and average people. I think it's good for the economy, and I think it would be very good for those stocks. Any tweaks that we should make to our portfolios going into a presidential election year? I would say, if you look at the presidential election cycle, one of the things you find is that actually the third year of, of the four years of a president's term, the third year tends to be the best, mm -hmm. the worst is the first, mm -hmm. uh, and the fourth year is a little bit worse than the third year. So 2020... 2020 will probably be underwhelming compared to what we've seen this year. Okay. The S&P, you know, through, through the end of October is up uh, over 20%. Right. Uh, so it's going to be very hard to repeat that next year. Earnings should snap back, but you're probably not going to get higher multiples, so you're not going to get the same type of performance. Uh, but I think actually, and we've said this for a while, I think active money management and stock picking will become more important, certainly as interest rates rise. And mm -hmm. if the economy strengthens, having a good active manager will be important. I really believe that. Mm -hmm. There have been periods when interest rates have been low where it's been difficult for active managers to beat the index, but it should get easier if the economy gets stronger. So Jason, speaking of active management, I know at Strategus that you run some active portfolios for both individual and institutional clients. And one of the ones that's most interesting to me is called the Policy Opportunities Portfolio, and you invest in large and mid-cap companies that, that have uh, you know, the highest degree of lobbying intensity. Right, and there the, the, the idea is that as the size of government has grown, uh, companies that have the best ability to maneuver the levers of government, either through avoiding bad things happening to them or taking advantage of new opportunities that government presents, um, is a good bet. And it has worked out quite well. And uh, until the swamp is completely drained, yeah. it seems to me that uh, lobbying the government is a management skill. For Whether we like that or not, I'm not particularly thrilled about that, but it is a reality. And in my opinion, it's a good way to invest. It's a good way to think about uh, investing in companies in this new world that we're in. So, so managing Washington is is an important leadership skill, right? I mean, uh, it's just it is, and I think technology for better and, or for worse. For better or for worse, and there are certain companies like technology companies that have found out the hard way in right. the past four or five years that ignoring Washington or being really aloof to what's happening in terms of uh, politically can be a risk. Uh, right. because you, there are a lot of people with a lot of interests uh, out there and you have to be quite aware of where the risk may be. Um, there are also opportunities that are presented by large government for certain companies as well. Uh, but uh, for managers these days, through the C-suite, managing Washington is important. Um, another one of your portfolios that's done super well is that it's called the New Sovereigns Portfolio. These are large mid-cap companies with, that are judged by the market to have you know, very high credit quality, rivaling some government Governments, debt. right. Yeah. It was, we originally created this portfolio, and it was we, what we noticed in the middle of the financial crisis that there were certain companies that were deemed to be better credits than governments, than sovereign countries, uh, U.S. included. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the portfolios have done quite well now as interest rates have fallen because a lot of people have more confidence in these companies, the balance sheets of these companies, than they do in the balance sheets of um, a lot of these countries, right. especially given some of the, the, the size of the debt that's been accumulated over the last 10 years. Uh, it's worked very, very well. If interest rates still stay low globally, 
these companies should continue to do well and continue to offer in some ways another alternative. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an equity alternative, mm -hmm. but it's a it's perhaps another alternative to just the index itself. They're very, very high quality companies that can compete with government bonds and, and offer better yields. Right. Jason Trenner, always a treat to have you on the oh, track. Thank my you great so pleasure. much. Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's Action Point follows Jason Trenard's advice to pay attention to policy, not politics. As distracting as all of the political drama coming out of Washington is, it is not going to determine the condition of your financial plan, the direction of your portfolio, or the business climate. Policy, however, can and will. Interest rates, taxes, rules and regulations all influence the health of consumers, business and the markets. Changes in policy matter much more than political news. Policy is where to keep your focus. Well, next week, our concentration is on the state of capitalism with entrepreneur, philanthropist and author Ken Langone and the Motley Fool's conscious capitalism advocate David Gardner. In this week's extra feature on our website, Jason Trenert recommends a biography of one of his financial heroes. We hope you will share your recommendations with us on Facebook and Twitter and join us on our YouTube channel. Thank you so much for spending your precious time with us. Have a super weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.